Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm your host, Lauren Lee. And who am I? I was your wacky 10th grade English teacher who would occasionally rap a Shakespearean soliloquy, would always encourage a live performance of a book report, and would occasionally dress up in costume as Professor Dumbledore to host an ethics debate, who then, after nearly a decade, decided to take the massive leap of faith to attend a coding boot camp, switch careers, and dive deep into the tech industry. I've been surprised by how many of the skills and lessons I learned as an educator have translated to my role in tech. So that got me thinking, have you taken a non-traditional route to tech? Or are you interested in transitioning yourself? This is a podcast that aims to interview career changers and folks who are diversifying tech. We'll hear stories from people who've taken unique paths and chat about the skills that they've transferred to their roles today. We're hoping to create a space for people to learn from one another, develop confidence, and debunk the antiquated notion that a computer science degree is required to succeed in tech. Come on, everyone. Let's dive in. My guest today is a software engineer for department store headquartered in Seattle on the iOS app team. She holds a bachelor's degree in American Sign Language Interpreting and completed a full-stack web development program at the Lambda School in 2018. She's a massive advocate for career changers and recently gave a talk called Choosing a Coding Bootcamp at a Women Who Code event for people interested in making the leap into tech. She also supports our community as a mentor for individuals with non-traditional backgrounds. Her name is Abby Tiffany, and I am so, so excited to have her as a guest today. Abby, thank you for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Okay, so let's dive right in and start at the beginning. Can you tell me more about the experience that you had before you entered the tech industry? Absolutely. So before I transitioned into tech, I worked as a sign language interpreter and a cued language transliterator. So basically, I worked between people who can hear and people in the deaf community to facilitate communication. Very cool. That's so interesting. And so when you were in that industry, had you ever thought about tackling or learning to code? I had, actually. I took my first programming course in my senior year of high school. I took an AP computer science class. It was basically intro to Java. And Mm -hmm. I loved it. But by senior year, I had already made my commitments to college and I continued down the trajectory that I I had already set and was working in the field by the time I realized that I wanted to change my industry. So I, I wish that I had had access to computer science earlier. And that's one of the reasons that I feel really strongly about working with people now to help them get into the field as well. And of course, bringing it to kids in school. Yeah, and getting everyone equal access to it too. It's so important. Cool. And so how did you decide at what point to attend the Lambda School? I was at a hackathon the first time I heard about Lambda School. And it was, yeah, it was brought to my attention by someone who was going to the University of Washington in a four-year CS degree. And he mentioned having heard about it and I hadn't heard anything about it, but I had been looking into different coding boot camps and programs in my area. And after looking into Lambda School, after speaking with the staff and the CEO of Lambda School, I was really impressed with their commitment to the students. It's a different kind of program. They don't charge tuition up front, but you do an income sharing agreement with them. And what I like about that is that it incentivizes the school to be on the same journey that you are, that they're just as incentivized 
for you to find a job as you are for yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a model that makes sense right. to me. Right. Yeah. So they're equally invested in it and they are hustling to help you find that position as well. Exactly. I think I think we all know at least one person who went through a coding program and is still not working in the field yeah. for whatever reason. And I didn't want that to be my story. Yeah. And so the statistics for Lambda School uh, have a better placement, I assume, then as well. Well, what's so funny is when I started, I was in the fifth cohort of a six-month program. So no one had finished Mm -hmm. the program when I started. Mm. They didn't have a single placement rate. So it was really taking taking a a leap. That's a leap of faith. Wow. And to go from ASL to this seems like quite a bit of a leap. And so did you want at one moment have a light bulb that you thought, you know what, I need to go and find a program. I need to go learn this. I, I want to acquire this skill as well. I think a lot of us who decide to enter into the field after a first career try to go down the self-taught route. And for mm-hmm. some people, they're highly successful at it. But I find that my curiosity to try a lot of new things can sometimes hinder me from being able to focus and deep dive deep dive into one issue. Right. There's so much out there. Which was the benefit of an organized program, right? Do a deep dive into one language by over the course of the program, get a really strong foundation there and then be able to hit the ground running in a completely different language or technology stack if necessary. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a really helpful way to to zoom in the lens and to decide what to learn. And you chose the the full stack track that they have. Yes, I did a full stack JavaScript program, which was at the time the only program that they offered. Now they have a number of different tracks. Oh, it's okay. interesting to see how it's grown and how it's grown in response to cohorts like mine who help them figure out exactly what makes candidates successful, which is, it's nice to see. And that's something Mm -hmm. from what I understand of at least four-year degrees, it's much harder to alter curriculum in that case. But knowing that these coding programs that a lot of us and my, and my peers go through, we get to shape the curriculum because the curriculum is specifically designed to make us excellent entry-level engineers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm so happy that you found them. Okay, what's one thing that excites you about the future of a career in What I'm seeing more and more is interest in pursuing new technologies, pushing the envelope. I think that's becoming more prevalent even outside of those big name tech companies that you see everywhere. Yeah, for sure. That's really, really fun to be on that innovative on the ground floor place. Neat. So Abby, what kept you from entering the tech industry before you did, do you think? There are a lot of barriers to entry that people experience. I think mm-hmm. I think we can both recognize that race and gender are some of the biggest barriers to entry, that mm-hmm. people of color and people's position on the gender spectrum can have a massive effect on their ability to get a foot in the door and to get those opportunities in tech. So I want to recognize those things and also to say that I had the privilege of not having those barriers to entry. A big barrier to entry for me was socioeconomic status. I had already mm-hmm. gotten my four-year. I was paying off my four-year degree, still having my student loans and wanting to consider a change mm. of pace. I had a hard time justifying to myself how I was going to sign up for another degree when I was still paying off the last one. Yeah. And doing that double payment. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And, and, and knowing that there is uncertainty in what comes after that. Looking at coding programs, I was noticing that a lot of them have that upfront tuition cost. And a lot of them have that mm-hmm. cost without the certainty of getting into the field. Without a guarantee, it's such a blocker for people. How can you enter into it? Yeah. How many people are 
are prevented from even trying to mm -hmm. change their lives mm -hmm. because of the sticker price of getting into tech. Yeah. And obviously, if you yeah. can get into tech, that oftentimes makes it financially while right but without that guarantee i was i was yeah. lucky enough to find the lambda program which didn't charge me up front mm -hmm. so i could afford to go to the program but even that i mean i quit my job right with right. absolutely no knowledge of being able to get a new job and mm -hmm. that's that's scary yeah. in itself. It's so terrifying. And I think that you bring up a good point of I went to ADA, which is a tuition free program, but I'm still living my year without income. And so that then required me to have savings, which I'll be honest, I didn't have a lot of because yeah, I had student loans and I live in Seattle and I was a teacher like <laughs> who notoriously aren't paid well. So it's, yeah, absolutely. I, I hear you. It's such a leap of faith. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most of us are coming from fields where we were paid, we were underpaid. Yep. And to yep. come from being underpaid and asked to have six months plus the amount of time right. it takes to find a job with savings is a very scary yeah. prospect. Yeah. And living without healthcare ideas, just, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. Just hoping you don't get sick over the next six months. Yeah. I guess I do hear people say often though, that it makes you work that much harder. And I do understand that perspective, but there's also some things that are outside of our control, right? Like let's be real. <laughs> Abby, I want to say thank you so much for being so empathetic to all of the different life paths that people have. And so I think it's really important. And thank you for saying that. Moving on, how has your past as an ASL interpreter helped you today in your role as a software engineer? I have met a lot of people coming from language backgrounds who go into tech. And that mm. could be because I look for mm -hmm. people with like paths to mine as mm -hmm. sort of a confirmation that it's possible. But I think it's not uncommon that people are coming from language backgrounds and moving into software development and engineering. I hear a lot from people outside of that who see it that, oh, well, of course, you know, computer science and software engineering is you're just learning other languages, right? Java is just mm -hmm. another language. I think I generally agree with that, especially if you consider syntax as a type of pattern recognition. Yeah, sure. I can get behind that metaphor, but there are some flaws to that too, right? Like I'm sure that that also is like, well, it's not same same yeah. in some way. Yeah. I mean, I think probably ability to learn is probably a better indicator of that than specifically language. That's it. Yeah. Nail on the head for sure. And I will say for language, for people with language backgrounds, I do think, at least in my experience, there's, there's a level of intentionality that you bring to the table. And what I mean by that is when I'm interpreting for someone, I am hearing the words they're using, but I'm listening to the meaning behind that. I'm listening to the mm -hmm. intention behind that. And, hmm. and what you translate is the intention and the meaning, not word for word. Wow. So I think when you, oh, when you bring that into tech, you look at a problem in, I think, a more abstract way, or at least I would hope that you do, and I would hope that I do. And that gives you the flexibility to attack that problem in a number of ways, rather than mm -hmm. rather than to feel stuck because you're just too myopic. Yeah. Wow. So you're doing some, not assumptions making, but um, helping reframe, understand, translate all in a moment. Wow. That's amazing. That's really, really cool. It encourages your brain to be so flexible, I imagine. I think so. And I, I think that a strong ability that language background people bring to the table. 
Yeah, bring to the table. Awesome. Do you see that those skills differentiate you from your coworkers? Say from those who have taken a more traditional route to tech? I happen to work with a, a number of people who also have non-traditional backgrounds. The team that I'm on is oh, excellent cool. in that it recognizes diversity of background as one of the elements that makes a diverse mm -hmm. team, one of the elements that makes a diverse team. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. the goal that I hear a lot and the goal that I see a lot and the goal that I admit to having as well is to be doing the job so well and so long that no one ever thinks to ask where you came from. And I don't I mm -hmm. don't mean that I want to be exactly the same as all my peers who went through the CS degree. I do think that it's valuable to bring all of the non-traditional background skills that I do bring. I think that is different. I think that each of us brings different skill sets and I hope that I hope that the time that I spent in other fields helps me to have unusual skills. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome, though, that you have a team that celebrates those paths that it is a it's almost a normative thing now at this point. And that feel mm -hmm. that's incredible. That is dreamy. And I'm sure you all tackle that you tackle you come to problems in really imaginative ways then. <laughs> and that probably makes sol problem solving really fun and collaborative, I bet, too. It's a super collaborative mm. team. And it's a super loud team because everyone has all these ideas that they're just so excited oh, to share. Beautiful. I really value that. <laughs> so cool. Okay, so I <laughs> Can you share with us any life lessons that you've learned from your transition to tech? Absolutely. I am extremely hard on myself. Mm. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing, um, but I hold myself to a very high standard. Mm -hmm. And about three months into my role here, my manager took me aside and he said, I think that your expectations for yourself are unreasonably high. And I think you need to be really proud of where you are. Mm. So, yes, it's good to have goals. <laughs> like it's great to be trying to get to that place, but also pause and recognize how far you've come. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, exactly that. And for me, it was because I have two questions that I typically ask myself. I ask myself, am I where I need to be? And I ask myself, am I where I want to be? Hmm. And what I was sharing with him was one of those things. I was sharing with him, you know, this is where I want to be and very motivated to get there. But I wasn't sharing with him the fact that I, I know I'm where I need to be and I know that oh. I'm I'm doing well. So I think being a little bit more honest about celebrating your successes and not simply sharing the high standard is an important thing. And I, I encourage everyone to celebrate those successes. I have a monthly lunch with other female engineers in my organization. And one thing that I've asked us to start doing that we all really enjoy is to just go around and share wins. Yeah, because we don't do that enough and no one else toots your horn for you. Right. Let me brag a little bit about myself for a moment. Exactly. And it's a safe base because we're all doing it and <laughs> I'm supposed to, but it feels good to share it then too and to recognize it in yourself because sometimes it's really easy to blaze right past and just pick up another ticket and then to feel uh, overwhelmed by all the things you don't know again and to forget that win that you just had. And to, it is very healthy and important to say, hey, I had an awesome moment today. I learned something new or whatever. I achieved that thing. And exactly. That's good on you. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, we spent so much time comparing ourselves to people who are much further along in their technical career. Yeah. And I think that is good in terms of seeing where you want to be. But when you start looking at someone else who's 5, 10, 15 plus years into their career and saying, I'm not where I need to be because I'm not like this person, I think that's really dangerous. And I think mm -hmm. we need to be more comfortable being early in our career. Because you have all this mm. unlimited potential ahead of you in the years to come. And there's yes. no need to rush that. And there's no need to apologize 
for being early in your career. You're at this massive point of learning Mm -hmm. and experimentation. And that's a really fun, exciting place to be. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that that's so true too, because being new to the industry and learning a new language means that you have empathy for a customer too. Like you are making sense of things that are difficult. And so you're trying to make the process so much easier. And so, yeah, there's just something really important and tackling the problems at that point or that perspective that you're bringing to the table then allows your team to see things that they may have missed yes, as well. Absolutely. Yes. That's very, that's incredible. Okay. So can you tell me about a time that you have felt like an outsider? Insider. And if you have, <laughs> how have you ever felt and dealt with those feelings? I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about. Gatekeeping in this industry? It's <laughs> unreal. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I first came up with that question, I was like, I don't know. Am I the only person that's felt this way? Like, is this weird to ask people? <laughs> I want to tell you, first of all, that when I was thinking about speaking with you, I felt such massive imposter syndrome. Oh my God. I had like a whole existential crisis about it. But I'm that's so one sorry. of the things that's how did how did I deal with it is I I met with the people in my network that I trust and I respect and I was really upfront in saying, "Hey, I'm having this reaction and logically speaking, I mm. know I'm where I need to be, mm. but I'm still yeah. having this reaction." The network is important and finding yeah, healthy ways to to deal with stuff that is irrational is important. Sure. Yes. So much yes of dealing with that and um <laughs> and gatekeeping doesn't help, right? No. For example, when I when I first joined my team, I was noticing that people just love talking about video games and what video games they like to play as a kid. And and that that becomes sort Ooh. of, for lack of a better term, nerd currency. And I was not into video games as a kid. I mean, I love VR games now as an adult, but I was not into mm-hmm. video games as a kid. It's this idea that keeps coming up and up again and again. I was recently reading a book called Science Fiction Prototyping. Right at the beginning of this book, this author's doing so much gatekeeping about how people who are nerds love sci-fi. And if you're a true nerd, then you definitely were into sci-fi as a kid. And at the same time, giving all these examples of these men who had gone into, had become famous for having careers in STEM and who all spoke up and said, the reason that I did was because of this exposure I had as a kid to characters who were just like me in sci-fi. And I fell in love with it. Holy cow. And oh my God. It made me so irrationally wow. angry because I kept thinking about all of this mounting proof that representation matters in order to get people yeah. into the field, yeah. as well as the gatekeeping that we like to do to try to tell people that they don't belong in the field. When why on earth would you? Why yeah. why would you be into these things when no one in it looks at all like you? Absolutely. Like why? That doesn't seem interesting to me. Like I'm having such a physical reaction to you (laughs) sharing that, right? Because it's like, yeah, I don't want to be in that. Like, get me out of this. You don't want me in here. It feels like then too. And and certainly that that continues and that's done (laughs) over and over again. There was an article from the New York Times Magazine earlier this year. It came out February, written by Clive Thompson, and it's called The Secret History of Women in Coding. It was this amazing article that at one point, they, he talks about that exact same gatekeeping tactic that was used in universities against female students in computer science degrees. And if you haven't read it, please sit down and read it. It doesn't matter where on the spectrum your gender is. It is a valuable 
article to read. And this idea that we have to forgive ourselves for having outside interests, right? If I don't, if all of my hobbies aren't nerd hobbies, that somehow that makes me less qualified to do my job. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I hope that we're moving a little bit farther away from that. Me too. Absolutely. And listeners, I will be sure to link the mentioned article in the show Thank notes. You. Of course. Abby, I so appreciate you sharing with me how you felt like an outsider and how you've recognized gatekeepers in your life. Can you tell me any tips that you have as you've recently gone through the mm. interviewing process? Can you talk to me about your thoughts in regards to the technical interviewing world? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a loaded question. Right. It really is. I'm so sorry. No, no. It's it's stuff we all do, right? It's Yeah. Some people say it's fun. I don't know that I've ever thought it was fun, but That's I find an interesting it interesting. Yeah, right? Um No. To each their own. <laughs> to each their own. Absolutely. Outside of the technical interview itself, I think there are a lot of common mistakes that I see and when I when I work with the people that I mentor that are looking to enter the tech field, something that I, I mm. really, really try to emphasize, and I can't emphasize this highly enough, is to use your network. And I know that sounds hokey, and I know that everyone says it, but I can tell you from my own personal experience, I must have applied to a hundred jobs on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. just like cold sending out resumes. Um, right. And I had a 2% rate of return in terms of getting a phone interview. Yeah. At the same time, I reached out to people on LinkedIn and I started forming relationships and I started networking and I started going to meetup events and I started reaching out to the people that I already knew who were working in tech fields. Mm -hmm. And I asked for advice and I asked for people to look at my resume and I asked what people are reading and I asked for comments on my projects and I eventually asked for referrals. And I can tell you of every referral that I received, I got a phone screening at every single company. Yeah. So when I say use your network, it's vital. Yeah. And that's just such proof in your numbers, right? If they're click through rates of the things that you were sending in your LinkedIn messages, they're not even opening that, right? And they don't even see it. Your resume might not have all the buzzwords that they're running their algorithm through. But if you have someone have a, the end that's like having a chirping ear in their recruiter's inbox, that gives you that just at least the foot in the door. Exactly. And reaching out to link to people on LinkedIn, if you just reach out to someone, you say, honestly, hey, I'm interested in what you do at your company. I would love to take you to coffee and pick yeah. your brain for 20 to yeah. 30 minutes. Almost everyone says yes. People love to be asked that question and to hear themselves talk too. It's so, true. Which is an ego People love to share Absolutely. their story. Oh, yeah. That's really, really good advice. Yeah, that's the first step. Part of it is also knowing that you are coming from a non-traditional background and that's something to be celebrated. That's yeah. not something to apologize for because you have mm -hmm. your lifelong experiences that you've been building up all your skills in. So the one area that you're feeling imposter syndrome on that you are missing some technical knowledge you're going to have to triage that. You can't possibly learn everything all at once that someone in a four-year degree learned over four years. 
Um, Absolutely. And that you just have to do your best and you have to forgive yourself. And stop apologizing. I love that idea. The same way back to the idea of not apologizing anymore for not being part of that nerd culture or playing video games as a kid or having those outside interests that you were saying, we need to stop apologizing for coming at things from a different place and to celebrate the things that are making us different. Because honestly, they're bringing us in to shake things up and to solve the problems differently. So let's lean into that. Exactly. Celebrate exactly. I love it. I love and that. And anyone who asks you to apologize for that, that oh, should boy, be a red bye. flag, right? Yeah. yeah. Not the company for you. Yeah. You're interviewing <laughs> them too. Remember that. That is vital to think about the moment you step into an interview, like ask those questions back that you need to know. I remember back when I was interviewing, I asked the question, tell me about the diversity makeup on your team and your leadership. And the person said back, huh. I've never thought about that before. And I thought, well, we don't say that out loud, sir. (laughs) Needless to say, that company didn't work out, right? Like that's a red flag for me. And you have to trust your gut on those moments when you ask those questions. If you get something back that you know when you're in that space, what you're looking to hear for that too. Exactly. If you don't feel comfortable asking those questions in the Mm -hmm. interview, when are you going to feel comfortable asking those questions? Yeah. We're so hungry though to get a job. And so we feel thirsty for a job. And so there's a really interesting balance. I have the debate quite often with friends of mine just say, well, you need to get your foot in the door. just end up anywhere. But I am a firm advocate and believer that we have to find the right place for us that will value us for who we are. So absolutely. The danger of taking a toxic job is that your first job might be your last job because you'll be so burned out. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I could not agree more. (laughs) Okay. So Abby, what do you think makes someone successful in this field? What are those attributes? Oh, I know it's big. (laughs) It's big Uh, and it's, it's so broad, but when I think about the people on my team and the people that I've been lucky enough to get to work with, the qualities that come to my mind are almost entirely non-technical. The people that I enjoy working with the most are curious, they're patient, they're motivated, always learning, right? So so if you had to describe the people that that you enjoyed working with, what, Mm -hmm. what attributes would you give them? The ones that are good teachers is what I love, right? I love the people that are empathetic to me and understand the questions that I'm asking and make me feel safe to be curious and to fail in front of them. Those Mm -hmm. are the people that I want on my team, right? Exactly. Obviously, having technical skills matters, right? There has to be a baseline. Mm -hmm. For sure. But that's why it's so important to recognize that what's making you successful now and what's going to make you successful throughout your career is all of those other skills that bring mm-hmm. that you bring to the table because of your background. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> uh, I do. I really do. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, so Abby, go ahead and make your shout out. What would you like the listeners to go check out? What do you want us to know about? Sure. So my resources that I love, I am obsessed with Natasha the Robot. I am definitely in her <laughs> fan club. The team Ray Wenderlich, I think is phenomenal, especially if you're going from zero to 60 and you want to pick up something new. And then very, very recently, I found this YouTube channel slash website called Back to Back SWE, um, and it's made by a gentleman, uh, Ben Ephraim. And uh, if you're looking to get clarity on, you know, time, space, complexity, 
or how exactly this algorithm that you've been studying actually breaks down, I think it's a phenomenal resource. So definitely check that out. Oh, very cool. I love that. I can't wait to see. I haven't yeah. seen that myself. I'm so excited. That's the fun thing. There's always something new to That's be learning That's the beauty about. of the field. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I love that. Okay, Abby. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today and sharing with me all the advice that you have for listeners, but also just being honest and open about your background and how you're killing it in the industry now. And I'm so excited for your future in it too. So where can people find you online? Oh, find me on LinkedIn. Abby Tiffany and send me a message. I'm happy to meet up. I'm happy to talk more. I really love hearing about people's experiences as they make the journey into tech. So please don't be shy. You are incredible. (laughs) It's just, it's amazing too, that you're like, yeah, I want to be an advocate for you and let me mentor. It's yeah, that's amazing. And so appreciative that we all have to, it's our duty, right? Absolutely. Make this a space as inclusive as we possibly can. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, on that note, thanks listeners. Have a great week. And that's a wrap on another episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.